I want to be able to leave Poder Latinx saying I built 20, 50, 100 new leaders that wouldn't have been in the movement if it wasn't for us taking time to train folks that don't have the experience. Because that's something we take great pride that our organization is building new leadership. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Yadira Sanchez has made a career of working on Latinx civic empowerment. She co-founded and currently serves as co-executive director of Poder Latinx, an organization building power for Latinx communities. She previously served as development director at Mi Familia Vota. Poder Latinx scaled quite rapidly after its recent founding, and so we talked about who they are, what they've been doing, and where Yadira wants to take the organization. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Yadira at Poder Latinx. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. My name's Yadira Sanchez. I'm a co-founder and co-executive director of Poder Latinx. I'm originally from Southern California, born and raised in, in Santa Ana. Santa Ana is a predominantly Latinx and immigrant populated town. I say town, but it's, it's a really densely populated city. I was raised there. I, both of my parents are immigrants from Mexico. They came to this country in the late 70s, early 80s, um, and settled in, in Santana because of the economic opportunities there. I, I attended high school there. I, I attended a predominantly Latinx high school, over 90%, I would say, are folks that look like me. And I spoke Spanish before I learned English, being born in the United States. So going to college was definitely a culture shock. For me, I uh, attended UC Santa Barbara. The student population there was not close to what my high school population looked like. I say this because I mentioned my city and my hometown and, and my parents because they definitely played a, a critical role on how I was raised and, and why I do the work that I do today to empower our community and, and build power for our community. Being raised in, in, in Santa Ana, during the 90s, um, I had many relatives in, in my household that were from mixed status backgrounds. And I experienced um, a lot of inequities growing up there from poor education and housing to having to deal with police, uh, racial profiling and, and ICE raids. It definitely made me who I am today. And 
And I took that to college where I um, major in Chicano and sociology studies. I think it was in college where I really learned the history of my community. Prior to going to UC Santa Barbara, I didn't know who Dolores Huerta was. I didn't know um, about the Chicano movement, uh, the United Farm Workers, um, the civil rights organizations that had emerged, you know, and, and had really fought for our rights about segregation, Mexican schools. Um, I had no idea. Um, so definitely um, brought in my perspective of, of our community and like the inequalities um, we face. And I say to people, I grew up low in a low economic, a poor community, but I, I didn't know that a lot of these challenges were systemic. I didn't know that until I went to college. And through, through school, I ended up doing an internship that led me to Washington, D.C., I um, interned with the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, and that's where I really got to see how decisions are made, how elected officials that we elect represent us, and definitely saw a lack of diversity, saw a lack of community voices that were speaking on behalf of the community, and, and definitely propelled me to go back to school because uh, I was in an internship and finished school and I came back. I worked with um, the Service Employees International Union. So I entered the labor movement. I worked with them in various departments, but definitely what marked me was working in the immigrant justice campaign. And there I kind of mixed my passion of immigrant rights where I thought before it was being an activist was like a hobby. It wasn't a full-time job that you would get paid for, get benefits <laughs> to do the work uh, that was very much needed for our community. That really uh, changed me. I got to meet so many amazing leaders that had dedicated their lives to the movement. And, and I instantly got bitten by that bug. And I knew that that is what I wanted to do you know, with my life is definitely advocate for my community. You know, selfishly, I know that if the work that I do pays off, then it would benefit my family. It would benefit my community. So it makes, that's, you know, what fuels me every day. And what really also motivated myself and other colleagues um, that came together to build Poder Latinx to do this work that we do. They, I'm very blessed to be working side by side, an amazing group of leaders who are uh, immigrant, who are queer, who are Latinas, who are young, to really build uh, this movement for our community where we are empowering our community to, to build power and, and, and live with dignity and respect. That's a little bit about myself. I, I think I went a little all over the place, <laughs> but just to give you some background. That's not an unfamiliar story to me. How do you enter this world of professional activism? It's often a recognition that the community you came from was getting the short end of the stick and that there are ways that people have organized together to make it better. And they do that in, in every community uh, to different levels of success, right? You spent some time at Mi Familia Vota after the SEIU? Yes. After working on the immigrant justice campaign, I really, and, and working like side by side, the, the co-founders of Mi Familia Vota, Ben Monterroso and Eliseo Medina, I, I was really inspired 
to to work directly for the community, for the community, by the community, because the organization was made up of many individuals that were personally affected or had, you know, family members that were affected by a lot of the work that we did. I work with them. I was their national development director, and that was also a very different type of work that I was never thought I would do, fundraising. I quickly learned that our movements, they need resources. Many folks um, hear about organizers burning out, um, and it's because they're doing three to four jobs, um, and, and the movements are not invested, are not funded like they should be, so we we're able to uh, have successful campaigns and have victories that our, our community could be a part of. So I de- definitely worked uh, really hard to fundraise for the organization. I'm very proud to say uh, how it had grown. And definitely the work that we did with Poder Latinx is also a testament of how there's investment in our community. We're able to to show results because uh, we're really proud of all the work that we did in just one year with the, the new organization Poder Latinx. Was Esteban Garces at Mi Familia Vota? Yes. I didn't know you, you knew all these, all these folks. We all met in labor, in a way. Uh, Esteban Garces and myself know each other since our SEIU days. And I always joke around that he followed me to Mi Familia Vota. Uh, but we both uh, ended up there as well with Esteban and with uh, other colleagues, Nancy and, and Alicia. Um, we decided to to form this new organization. So we, we definitely saw the importance of, of building political power, uh, the civic uh, that I think everybody sees as very important, but that often only gets seen every two years, every four years when there is a need to get the Latino vote. Our vision for the work that we do is that election years are meant for us to gain political capital that is meant to be spent the day post the election. So we definitely centered our work a lot on community organizing and leadership development, using this political capital to really accomplish local wins that our community can be a part of. Because it's, it's, the change doesn't happen national. You know, having a new president is not going to change everything. It's definitely going to help. It's definitely setting us in the right direction. But there's a lot of work that has to be done at the local level. So um, that's how we balance the civic and the, the advocacy work. So what's the sort of founding story for your curtain group? 2016 changed so many things. The Trump era really marked the lives of many people in our community. Uh, the fear that was instilled on the election day woke us up and, and we needed to do more. We needed to be more active. Like the, the four years that followed were not easy, were hard. And there was a, a very big need to leverage the political capital we've gained to build local because we knew the administration was going to take certain action at the federal level, but we had to do everything in our power to protect the community. Um, so that really sparked us to come together, myself, Esteban Garces, Alicia Contreras, Nancy Batista, to form an organization that was really centered on community organizing, leadership development, and civic engagement. And that really birthed Poder Latinx. We were anchored in Florida. We quickly began, we really didn't have a chance to build and and to plan, you know, thoroughly. We were 
Um, as soon as we got funded, we were very fortunate to start with a very large voter registration program. Right off the bat, we hired up 60 folks uh, and they were on the ground collecting voter registrations at sites. And um, we had by the end of December of that same year, only a few months later, um, collected close to 20,000 voter registrations. So we were building the plane as we were flying it, as we sometimes say, but it, it really took off right away from our beginning in Florida and it spread to Arizona. In January, we opened operations there. And in September, we open operations in, in Georgia. So we're currently in three states, in Arizona, Florida, and Georgia. You said you got funded. How did you make that happen? That's not a trivial thing, as you know, as a development director. We've been very fortunate to have really strong partners and allies uh, that know us personally, but also know the important work that needs to happen in the community. We might be a new organization, but we are definitely not new to the game. A lot of us have been over a decade in, in this movement, uh, working on on registering folks, on uh, electoral campaigns, on the issues that we were organizing the community around, economic justice, climate justice, immigrant justice. We knew uh, what we were talking about, and we had been very key in developing really strong systems, infrastructure in the civic space that folks, funders, partners, allies knew that we were more than qualified uh, to run operations at that scale for the first year. I believe if, there, if it wasn't because we had run operations or we had overseen those types of programs at a national scale, I don't believe we might have been able to do as much as we did. But the experience really did speak for itself. And like I said, only within a few months, we were able to quickly set up shop and, and start an operation that it could have taken other folks many more years to to really fine-tune to that level. It's pretty impressive to get to that size so quickly. And I, I suspect that there was a recognition that there was a real need in this area too, right? Who else does good work in the area that you were running your programs that was already there? And why did we need a new organization? There are already um, great organizations doing this work, and we're very fortunate to say that we've worked um, really closely with so many. There's always a need to support community-based organizations. The work that we're going to do, uh, that we did for the Latinx, I always tell folks that we would have done it regardless. <laughs> regardless, we got paid or not, we would have been they're advocating, you know, working a regular nine to five and then giving the time to building this political power for our community. I definitely think like we feed into the ecosystem because there's there's a need and there's a niche for all organizations. For us, competition is a good thing because that means it's more outreach to the community. It's more engagement. And we love partnering with folks and, and joining forces. I think that's very powerful when organizations come together in a united front, really work collaboratively, especially when it comes to like civic programs, social justice, issue-based programs. If someone's trying to understand exactly what it is you do, what do you tell them? Our organization works on empowering our community to build political power. And we center folks most impacted, uh, immigrants, Latinx, uh, people of color in the center 
um, because we believe that we are building this political wave together with them. We have year-round civic engagement programs. We'll be uh, not only working midterms and presidential, but also municipal races, local and state. We also center our work around three core issues, economic justice, climate justice, and immigrant justice. And we have community organizers as well year-round working uh, to educate, inform our community on very important issues, um, not just immigration, because our community cares more than just immigration. Economic, we've been a very active a partner on the Paid Leave for All campaign. We sit on the steering committee. Um, we're also part of the other climate campaigns and, of course, immigration campaigns. Our, our folks are use these issues to organize our community when it comes to our civic programs. We believe we don't endorse candidates or parties. Uh, we uh, organize around the issues. So when the election came, we were very vocal to make sure that our community knew where the candidates stood on what issues, uh, what platforms they were running on to make sure that they understood that putting these folks in these positions of power, like we needed to have folks that had our backs, that were our champions. That's in a nutshell uh, what we do um, on the civic and on the advocacy side. It's uh, sometimes tricky to have co-founder, co-executive director structure. Sometimes it's simpler to have a unitary executive that makes the decision, but I've seen it work elsewhere. What's the secret? Esteban and I dance pretty well. We use that um, as an example. Like We have different strengths, um, different skill sets, and I think that is what has um, allowed us to do so much in one year. Um, we have different expertise. We lean on each other. For, you know, the expertise were not the strongest. It's actually really helped communication-wise. I think it definitely, this COED ship, a lot of the communication that I have learned, I definitely would even put it to use in my personal relationship with my partner because uh, it, it really has uh, made me a better communicator. It, it has worked for our organization, and we have seen it as well with other partner organizations that have COED leadership um, also work. Um, I don't know if there's like a, ma a magic sauce or anything, but how we've done it is we've divided up the work. I do development and communication, um, and he does the feel and the organizing. Um, and that's how we split the work. And we, like I said, we lean on each other for our strengths. The other buckets of work on, on each other because we, we know where we're the strongest. Why did you pick the name that you picked? Mopoder means power, and Latinx is the name of our community. We wanted to be gender inclusive. We wanted to make sure that everyone uh, felt included uh, in, in the name. So that's why we decided to call ourselves Poder Latinx. Our logo, if, if you have ever looked at it, it has a fist um, on top of the O uh, that definitely um, signifies the power for our community. And there's a line where the fist is breaking through the line, signifying us breaking through um, our barriers. That's how we, we came about. We wanted to build power for our community. So it, it was pretty simple and straightforward. So we, we definitely uh, landed on it right away. The term Latinx, like a lot of other forward moves that, that are taking place in the language, is in the process of being accepted rather than fully accepted. 
what's your view on those people who have resisted that change in terminology? We've, we've definitely received comments and, and concerns on the name. Even people from our own community, they don't identify as Latinx. They don't like us to use the, the term Latinx when identifying uh, about the community. And we respect, we respect how people want to be identified as. We always say we're not forcing anyone to identify with the term. We're using the term to be more inclusive of everyone within our community, women, uh, LGBTQIA community, folks that historically don't haven't felt included because of the masculine term Latino. It's um, sometimes also a generation thing. Uh, there's folks that still use the word Hispanic. Uh, they use the word Latino. They use the word Latin. They use the word Chicano. Uh, so there, there's many terms um, out there to identify yourself. And, and we always tell people to use the one they feel the most comfortable. We're using this. We know that it's very popular with the youth. Um, in high schools and colleges, folks are using the term. In the progressive circles is being used. Uh, we definitely want to make sure that our community um, feels comfortable and use it. So we have seen as well with, with the campaigns and our canvassers, volunteers, they even um, say it in Spanish, Latinx. <laughs> so th- we've definitely seen it grow, uh, not at the rate that Latino or Hispanic is, but it's definitely growing since we started using it. I mean, I'm aware that like any community, the Latinx community is diverse and complicated. How do you even begin to organize such a, a large group of people? How do you see the politics in the Latinx community in the U.S. these days? Yes, definitely our community is very diverse. And I think everybody recognized in the 2020 election that we're not monolith. We've been saying that for a while, and I think folks uh, caught up, actually understood it this election cycle. Uh, the Latinos, the Latinx, the Hispanics in Florida are very different than the ones in California, Texas, Arizona, even Georgia. The backgrounds do really change in each in each state. That is actually what we have very intentionally used to craft our programs and turning it over, like pivoting into the communications um, digital program that we launched this year, Votar es Poder. We knew our community was not all the same. We couldn't speak uh, to Puerto Rican the same as uh, a Mexican voter. So we intentionally created uh, programs tailored to that constituency. So when COVID hit, we did not see that coming. Uh, But of course, like any other organization, we adapted and we tried our best to continue the civic work. We pivot into the digital space. We got creative. We got innovative. Um, we launched our Votar es Poder a campaign. And the, the first program that we focused on was in Puerto Ricans in Florida. We partnered with Somos Arte, uh, the creator of La Borinqueña, an Afro-Boricua superhero, to do a multi-series um, webcomic promoting our community to register to vote, to vote early, and to get out the vote on election day. So that was very tailored to the Puerto Rican community, was very tailored to the Latinx youth. We also did another layer of the campaign where we were targeting more the um, Mexican-American community, a segment of of our population. We partnered with Las Cafeteras and LA uh, Band, who also are, are 
you know, made up of activists as well, folks that have been organizing in our community and they are very talented and they're also singers. So we partnered with them, um, the release of their, their latest single, Long Time Coming, um, which was uh, also a, a great hit in our community. A lot of folks uh, enjoyed the song. We also partnered with them again in, in Georgia, uh, with Georgia On My Mind. They did a rendition of the classic song and uh, as well using rhythms from, from popular music like Latin Trap, Cumbia. We definitely tailored that as well. Like we knew this was speaking to the Chicanos, to the Mexican-American folks that identify, folks also that knew the band. They're Like I said, they're a Chicano band from LA. So we used a different type of tactic for those constituencies. We also created a digital art gallery. Folks that celebrated Latinx History Month, we wanted to do more than, than just celebrate the month. We wanted folks to take action. So the art gallery um, lived on our website, it's still there. And um, it had art from Latino, Latinx, they all identify differently. I don't want to put them in umbrella. We had a lot of talented folks that were using their art to empower, promote people to register to vote, to vote early. We use their art to empower our community. Um, so that that's just an example of like different segments that we were targeting because we knew um, that one uh, tactic did not fit all. Um, the last um, webcomic episode that we did it for Georgia specifically, we knew La Borinquena would have been more popular in Florida than in Georgia, but we brought in influencers of Mexican descent. Uh, well, renowned journalists, Maria Elena Salinas, uh, Cristela Alonso, Aida Rodriguez. We brought in these ladies to join uh, forces with uh, La Borinquena and really talk to the Latina electorate. So we were very focused on Latinas coming out to vote. Um, in Georgia. So that's what we use that specific web comic episode to target in Georgia. These are just examples of how we use culturally competent tactics, strategies to make sure we were reaching those specific communities we were trying to reach. In Georgia, the electorate is very young. So we were targeting Latinx youth, folks under the age of 35, using creative digital strategies like music, like art, a web comic, that sort of thing. One of the most annoying questions you get when you run a, an organization like this is like, what is your impact? But I feel like asking it anyway, like, how do you know what you're accomplishing by doing this? What is the result of you having been out there putting out all this effort with this number of people? What has changed because of that? I think the biggest change we've seen is is the leadership, the leadership that's emerging. Every time we have programs, our programs bring in folks from the community uh, that most of them have never participated in, in a campaign. They've never done canvassing. They've never done phone banking. Um, very proud to say the Florida team was 100% uh, Latina-led. It was also all the meetings were run in, in, in Spanish. Our quality control team were all Latinas, mostly Spanish monolithics, and that's uh, very uncommon um, in the electoral space. And for us, like the biggest impact we had is we, we definitely saw in the community, in the leadership, we've seen folks that weren't active in, in civic and politics that are now posting and tweeting and, and sharing content that is political, 
Uh, we saw it with their families, how they, uh, through their work, were really empowered to reach out to their families uh, during the COVID pandemic. The first thing we did was relational organizing. We knew we had to resort to phone banking, to text banking. Uh, we couldn't be on the field anymore uh, talking to people in person. The first thing they did is through talk, through text, uh, reach out to um, to our community, but specifically uh, reach out to folks that they personally knew, folks that they had relationship with, folks from their churches, folks from their schools, uh, from their neighborhoods. Um, we definitely have been seeing the impact other than the results. We have a new president, and I think everybody who did any work contributed into into that. Um, also, we have new leadership in states. We saw states that flip. Uh, we're in Arizona, we're in Georgia, uh, we're in Florida. Um, and we definitely see that, it, you know, it wasn't us obviously coming in. We definitely want to give credit to those organizations that have been there for so long, for decades, organizing the community. That was really the impact was years of organizing, was years of investment that they these uh, organizations, our partners put in uh, to make sure that our community was being heard, that they were being included in the democratic life of this country. Um, and we're happy to say that we contributed. We contributed in 2020, uh, like our other partners. Whenever you set out to build something, like you set out to build this organization, sometimes you can surprise yourself. Like you've climbed to the top of a ladder that you wouldn't even know that you were going to lean against the tree or whatever. But sometimes it turns out to be the wrong ladder. Is this the right ladder for you? Are you, is this where you want to be? Is this where your heart is? Yeah, th this is definitely the right ladder. Um, we did impress ourselves and of what we were able to accomplish. Like I said, just very young organization. We registered over 41,000 Latinx voters, mostly low propensity voters, folks that are not your already regular folks that are going to vote on election day. We also made over 3.6 million calls uh, to Latinx voters. Uh, we were calling from as soon as we went into quarantine on March 15th, we started calling our community in, in Arizona and Florida and later Georgia. We sent over 4 million uh, Texas combined as well um, between the three states. And for the Georgia runoffs, I think we were able to utilize the skills we had gained throughout the election cycle to really go hard on, in Georgia. And we were able to make over 400,000 calls and knock in over 22,000 doors with a team of, of close to 45 um, plus volunteers. We had many volunteers, folks from out of state that wanted to they wanted to contribute, they wanted to support, and we very um, appreciate the coordination and, and the support that we received from our national partners that came in to support. You're going to continue. What's the plan? What's the vision? Yes, yes, we are definitely going to continue. The work did not stop on election day. That's when the real work actually begins. Our plans is to work on municipal races this year. Our plan is to continue building the electorate, uh, doing the voter registration remotely until um, it's safe to, to resume in field. Um, we are also working on, on three national campaigns and, of course, moving on the local fronts on these issues, especially when it comes to immigration, climate action, and economic, specifically paid leave. The pandemic has devastated our community. 
and you know we've seen it with the the toll of lives uh, that we've seen uh, lost and are uh, taken from our community and a lot of it is because we have many essential workers we have many folks that don't have the luxury probably that you and I have uh, to work remotely they have to risk in-person contact because of their line of work we've been fighting since day one making sure that our community gets the proper covid relief they need and paid leave is very important because we've lost so many folks um i think almost everybody i know in the latinx community has lost a loved one they know a friend who lost a parent a, a grandparent not everyone has the luxury to be with their with their loved one and during you know their final days because paid leave is not available and you have to provide for your family. So we definitely been and will continue to advocate for those issues that are very important for the livelihood and for the prosperity of our community. What do you think is the biggest challenge for you? The biggest challenge is is definitely going to be investment. For being a young organization, we did receive support and we're very thankful of our philanthropic partners that really came in and doubled down during the pandemic. Um, major props out there, Movement Voter Project, the Youth Engagement Fund, um, State Infrastructure Fund, they really supported um, our efforts. And, and we're, you know, so many more. And of course, I'm leaving way many out. But we need definitely year-round investment. And we need long-term investment. And that's a challenge, not just for Poder Latinx, but for all community organizations we need long-term investment. It's not the election and let's come back again in 2022. We need to build towards 2022. There's going to be two Senate races in Arizona and in Georgia, those two states that, um, well, in Florida as well. We There's going to be Senate races that it's really going to could tilt as well the, the Senate, you know, what happens the, the next two years of the Biden administration. So, uh, we have to continue building. We need to continue planning, uh, and we need investment. The three states that we have, we have year-round staff, folks that are from the community, state directors, coordinators, activists, uh, very passionate about the work that they do, and, and they're not going to stop, but we definitely need support. Um, and I'm speaking for Poder Latinx, but I, I can speak for all nonprofits, and we definitely need investment. Um, we need support. We need training right now when we have the time. Uh, We need investment in leadership development. We need to continue building that leadership pipeline. I want to be able to leave Poder Latinx saying I built 20, 50, 100 new leaders that wouldn't have been in the movement if it wasn't for us taking time to train folks that don't have the experience. Because that's something we take great pride that our organization is building new leadership. These are folks that might not have the expertise, but they sure have the passion and the skills. Like we'll help them with training and with guidance. What happens right now when you go to previous funders or new funders at this moment? What are you hearing? What's standing in the way of sort of getting what you need early? It's a mixture. We're hearing folks saying they're still working on their plans. They're waiting uh, to have their board meetings the first uh, quarter to finalize the plans and, and move on their target states. We hear other folks already have their plans and um, they're moving on on specifically on, on the issues that I mentioned, uh, making sure we use uh, the first 100 days and we hold folks accountable to the promises they made during the campaigns. And we use the legislative session to, to push for local state wins as well as federal. There's a lot of movement already. Like we feel like 
we have not stopped <laughs> since 2019. We went through an election a year after the election. We went into the runoffs and now we're going into the first hundred days legislative session. Funders, like I said, are still planning and some of them have already moved, which is, is great, especially on those three um, issues on immigration, on paid leave and on uh, climate action. Are you aware of the efforts on the other side, the Republican side, to work that your community and to push them in that direction? And what do you see going on there? Well, our organization is, is nonpartisan, um, so we don't coordinate with any of the parties. The Republican Party uh, historically has ignored the community and has directly attacked with local legislation pushing ICE to coordinate with police, making it difficult for immigrants to live in the state. Um, we're seeing now uh, so many uh, voter ID laws uh, being pushed. There is um, a lot of work they're pushing on on trying to dismantle the power that these communities help build by setting many barriers. And we need to be very vigilant of, of that, of what's happening right now with the, the voter IDs, the voter suppression, um, because these laws would just make it so much difficult for our community to vote early, for our community to vote by mail. It would put a burden on, on getting IDs and, and making it much more difficult uh, to vote instead of facilitating the voting process. Um, so that's something that we're definitely seeing conservative um, officials, uh, Republicans push for. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? I have not mentioned that also in 2020, we, we also launched a fellowship called Poderosas and um, very much centered on building the Latina civic engagement pipeline, specifically young uh, Latinas, Gen C and millennials mostly, um, who have done amazing work uh, for the both the general election and the runoff that has really set a stage for the Latina electorate that I don't think we talk a lot about, but definitely it's noteworthy that record numbers came out in the 2020 election. Um, and then we're seeing more and more uh, Latinas uh, vote tied to that. They're getting their families and communities to vote. Um, so that's why we also centered a fellowship just dedicated on building that leadership. And we centered some of our campaign work targeting Latinas as telling them um, we partner with uh, She Se Puede and we were able to run uh, Latina focused ads on Univision um, talking to Latinas directly to vote, to get their families to vote and empower their communities to vote as their as the CEOs of their families. The Latina electorate will continue growing and will continue to play a key role in the midterms and, and next presidential election. I'm confident of that. Um, really an honor to talk to you today. Is there anything else you want to say? No, if you have any other questions, let me know. Thank you for your time. That was Yadira Sanchez. She's at poderlatinx.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.